welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. For any of you that have been paying any attention whatsoever to me for more than eight seconds, you have probably heard me mention Great Dixter and then, of course, therefore, Christopher Lloyd. It was one of the first places, I'll also give a quick shout out to Adrian Bloom and the Bloom family, that really challenged some of my conventional thinking about plants and the world of gardening. And one of, I think, the most fascinating parts of great gardens like Dexter is it's all about plants in a, in a very different way than maybe sometimes people think about it. Joining me is Aaron Burleson, who has been in charge of the vegetable garden at Great Dixter and run that beautifully. Let's get right into it, Aaron. Give me a bit of the framework of, obviously, Great Dixter has been known as an incredible garden, one of the best in the world, but the vegetable garden has always been a part of Dixter. Give me a little bit of a framework of the, the backstory and current day of it. Yeah, hi there. Um, well, Great Dixter was built as a family home. And in 1912, when the Lloyds moved into their newly renovated property, they were heavy, they were a young couple with a growing family. And in those days, estates like this had vegetable gardens. And so the whole high garden and parts of the peacock garden, which are now uh, the decorative parts, were actually all vegetables. So it was a huge part of the garden. So they were, they wanted to be self-reliant as, as much as possible. And so they had a huge vegetable garden. The rhubarb is, has been there since 1912 and hasn't been lifted since and still remain. It's one of the plants that still remains as it was. Which is really fascinating to think. Do, do you see now, like stepping back, right? We're way into the future of this. Do you see some of the same thing that I do today that so many people who are new to gardening, they're actually coming to gardening through the edible vegetable gardening side of it? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of people I meet, you know, you'll say, how did you get into gardening? And they'll say, well, their grandfather was a vegetable gardener or their grandmother grew vegetables. And it was an easy way because children are intrigued by vegetables because it's something they can do and eat. Uh, whereas decorative, obviously, you can't eat what you're working with. So children love growing vegetables. And it's often a, a, the first steps in, in their passion for, for horticulture. What? In your own personal journey with plants, how did you arrive at the position you are today at Dexter? Well, I came in uh, 1996 as a student. Uh, Christopher had been to New Zealand, and uh, I'd and he was uh, an article in Gardens Illustrated about him. And I decided, and it was about the time I decided I was going to leave New Zealand and come and see Europe. And so I wrote to Christopher and asked if I could be a student for three months. Uh, three months became three years, and uh, by that point, Christopher said, "Well, I think you should do some formal training." So I went off to Q and did the Q diploma, and and always came. I used to come back not every weekend, but for weekends, and we holiday together. I went with him and Beth Chateau to Brittany one holiday. Uh, so I, I it was always part of my life, and then I went off to Israel and was in the Botanic Garden in Jerusalem for two years, and I used to phone Christopher regularly and come and visit. And then I came back again permanently in 19, uh, 2006. 
and started the vegetable gardening in 2007. Now, you clearly had the opportunity to know and work with Christopher Lloyd, who, for anyone in the United States who doesn't know, is one of the real huge luminaries, is the word I'll go with, Aaron, of the world of gardening. Um, You said you had reached out to him when you were living in New Zealand. Did when you reached out to him, did you already have that sense of how important he was and would always remain in the world of gardening at large? No, to be perfectly honest, I had studied um, social anthropology and classics at university, and horticulture wasn't really my world. Um, but I suddenly, it was something, you know, I'd done a degree that wasn't actually much use for getting a job, uh, and I'd always had an interest in horticulture. And I, 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 to be perfectly honest, I didn't realize what I was doing when I said I would come to Great Dexter, but I did, and the rest is history. So is his both wit and knowledge of Dexter as true as everybody else accounts that it was? Oh, he was an extraordinary person. He was, uh, I mean, a, a one-off. Uh, you know, the, you don't meet people like him every day. He, his, but it's not. I mean, I think people just pigeonhole him horticulturally. But Christopher had a great passion for music, for cooking, for uh, enjoying life. He really did enjoy life. And but he was incredibly bright. And uh, you know, you couldn't make a throwaway comment with him and not follow it up with. Uh, why you'd said it so you you were he kept you on your toes the whole time and he had a good sense of humor as well which always helped do you feel like now you know over 20 years in the world of gardening and horticulture is something that uh p allen smith a former guest on the podcast and i talked a lot about was how gardening is really a creative medium so many of the people that you meet that are really good at it have those kinds of interests. It, it is a diversity, you know, they can be passionate about the arts or cooking. Um, there's a fascination of curiosity of the intellect that seems to be associated with it. Would you say that that's true? Obviously, it was of, of Christopher, but other people that you meet as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I honestly think garden is a living art. It's you're painting a picture with plants, whether it be vegetables as a decorative form or or decorative plants. I mean, it's an art form, and people in the world are very creative, um, which makes them much more interesting. How do you balance the line, at a, and or do you even consider balancing the line at gardens like Dixter when you're when you're really running it because it is a, a public garden as well that so many people visit between uh, production and making sure that it, it looks pristine, but also still experimenting with new things, in particular in the, the world of vegetable? Well, I think Christopher was a great teacher with his view was people were coming to see his garden and he never gardened for people. He gardened for himself. Uh, and so the vegetable garden has to be a living, working vegetable garden as it was you know because i i look at lots of gardens you know vegetable gardens around the world and i one one of the things that turns me off hugely is when you see that the vegetables aren't used because i i think it's a, you're not really doing what you should be doing with the plants i mean it's an edible crop you should eat it 
So it's it's gonna never it's gonna look it's gonna look perfect perfect for a moment, but as a rule, it's gonna look there's gonna be lettuces taken out of a row. There's gonna be things cut. But I think people like seeing that. They like seeing that it's alive and uh, taken from. Do you think now? This it's interesting you say that because in the the social media impact of gardening and plants, it's all about that grammable photo. Right. It, it's you, you feel like there are uh, some things that are gardens that almost borderline into being photo studios. Do you think that's sort of becoming maybe almost problematic? That, as you said, the gardens aren't actually there to be enjoyed or living organic things the way they should be, that they're sort of just being approached sometimes as like set dressings in a play. Well, I think the thing you've got to you've got to take the social media thing as a with a pinch of salt, really. Um, it's you've captured a moment. You know, you can take a photo and then cut your row of lettuces. You know, there's a lot. You know, photos don't paint the whole picture of what and what's going on around it. There's lots of snippets, and I think it's also it's a snippet of a moment in your life of happiness and you know you may that night cry yourself to sleep it doesn't exactly show the whole picture of of how things really are um i think you can't take it too seriously i mean i love a good photo as much as anyone but i certainly don't look at people's photos and think wow i wish i could i aspire to have that i think it's you know you've got to see the whole picture really so the book that you've put together is both of gardening, but also recipes. And through what I've read about Christopher throughout his life, he also cooked as well, right? Well, yeah, he did latterly. So in 1973, Mrs. Cunningham has cooked died. And they had an interesting relationship, as one often does with domestic staff. Um, They drive you mad, but you can't do without them. And he decided at that moment that he would he would give cooking a go he would try it and he and and try his own style and he had a great friend who um who kind of got him go a few friends got him going and he he really took it on so from from the early 1970s his mother had died and the whole feel of great dexter sort of changed it became his home he wanted to have his friends visiting and he wanted to cook for them and so he really enha- enhanced cooking and embraced cooking is the word actually I should be using. Um, and uh, he he was a recipe follower, so he followed recipes, but he also wrote comments in the rec- on the side of the recipes, um, needs longer, needs cut this, add that. So he did slightly change them, but he was uh, he did follow a recipe as a rule. Did that impact the garden itself, the vegetable garden, that as he started to embrace the world of cooking that he started to say okay i i really like to eat this i really enjoy this this is a an herb we should grow more of was that reflected in the vegetable garden like his own personal taste yes i absolutely think it did and also it probably shaped what he was cooking when he was cooking because it was the the part of the garden he visited most days and he would go up and have a look what was at its peak then and and cook from it um 
I mean, he obviously knew lots of ways to use lots of the vegetables. He'd had years of practice. And so he grew what he wanted to eat, and he ate everything. Uh, And his cooking reflected what was in season at the time. That is something that I, you know, the world of horticulture sometimes, I think in particular on the ornamental side, we're asking so much out of some plants, right? Especially in the breeding work of plants. Bloom longer, bloom bigger, bloom better, all of these things. But in the world of vegetable, you know, clearly we're after that too. But don't you think as someone who's clearly passionate about it yourself, that some of that seasonality of things like asparagus or rhubarb, that's also what makes them so special that it is this, as you said, even with like photos, it's this moment in time. Completely. And the thing is, if you don't have anything to look forward to, what's the point? You know, those, those, those few weeks when strawberries are at their best, there's no point eating them any other time because they never taste that fantastic. You know, the, things should have their moment. And if you're a greedy person like me, they shouldn't last too long because it would probably kill you. Um, but, you know, you've got to enjoy that moment when the asparagus is at its best. We don't grow it at Great Dixter, but we, we have locally it's grown. And, you know, there's a few weeks, it's probably three weeks that it's just fantastic. And just enjoy those three weeks and then wait for the next thing to be ready. You've got to have things in life to look forward to. I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb here and, and make uh, just an observational thing that we've brought up before in conversation on the podcast. I feel like the world of food has done a very good job. Uh, let, let's use wild mushrooms, things like morels as an example of this, of really sometimes embracing that seasonality and people that are educated about it have that understanding. But I think sometimes on the ornamental, however we want to, don't want to make too many divisions between plants, but on the world of flowering plants, we don't maybe have that same level of knowledge or appreciation for that fleeting moment that that is again what makes them special is that something that you you observe at all that in sometimes in the gardening world that we're not maybe embracing that same short fleeting special season as maybe we are in the food world yeah i think one of the problems with gardening is you it's you're always thinking of the season in front of you you're not in that moment whereas when you're growing to eat you're actually eating it. So when you're eating that thing, whether it be a piece of uh, asparagus, you're living in that moment of its perfection. Whereas when you're in the decorative side of gardening, you're you're never actually in that moment. You're always thinking the season ahead and what you need to do to be ready for that season of a season ahead. Whether it be you know staking the dahlias or getting the dahlias out or whatever you've got to do you're not actually in that moment which is a a great shame and i think christopher was very good about living in his garden and and enjoying its moment and i think it was it was a great lesson for me from him one of my favorite clips of christopher is he's having a conversation with rosemary fury and (laughs) he makes the comment about dahlias and she makes a comment about them and he goes, well, I know they're not popular with that many people right now. 
and, you know, sort of inferring that she doesn't like them too much, that they're a little too brash or a little bit too hot color toned. And it's this really fun exchange between the two of them that showed, you know, his willingness to embrace things that weren't popular of the moment, maybe. In the world of vegetable, was that the same? Was he willing to sort of say, okay, I get it. Maybe everyone else is thinking this is a thing that's exciting. But for me, I'm, I'm not going to just buy into that because that's conventional wisdom or interest at the moment. Well, Christo grew for taste and flav- uh, flavor and, and how it cooked. So he didn't he wasn't a fatty sort of person i don't think as a rule uh, he was rather conservative i suppose so he never rushed into things but it didn't mean he didn't try them or stick to you know things that had gone out of fashion he sort of kept going with what he he liked um i think he he gardened his edible and decorative gardening was very very different in his in, in its approach uh what he would try whereas the the uh, vegetable side of things had continuity throughout, you know, would have been very similar to his parents' time here. When you come on board at Great Dexter and you have this, you know, again, sort of legendary gardening figure there and, and over time, clearly you become more and more aware of that in his place. How much personal freedom did he give you in the vegetable garden as far as your own uh, spin on it, your own input? Well, I actually didn't, I, I wasn't doing that much actually, to be honest, in the vegetable garden in his life. It wasn't, he died in 2006 and I started the veg, it's really full on vegetable garden in 2007. Uh, Which is almost I, even a tougher position to come into. I, I, <laughs> you know, I work, had worked in the decorative side of things Um I did. I did help Perry Rodriguez, who was his vegetable gardener at the time. I used to help him, um, and I used to go and pick vegetables. But I certainly uh, was more on the decorative side. So, uh, but you know, P- Christo instructed what he wanted and what he needed from the kitchen garden very much. How when when he passes away in '07, you know, it's something that in the future hopefully we'll be able to get Fergus on to talk about as well. That's a lot of pressure for the whole team there, right? The the garden and the the man himself is such a you know indelibly linked combination. That how did the team overall sort of go there? Was there a moment where everyone knew that hey, we, it's it's great Dexter and it's Christopher Lloyd, but gardens have to evolve because that was one of his tenements of gardening too. That they do change and they are a living thing. Well, I think uh, it wasn't a case of, Chris, uh, you know, Christopher Gardened up to the do- moment he l- died. Um, there'd been a slow transition. Obviously, Fergus had really taken the reins. I mean, not completely, because he obviously Christopher wouldn't just, uh, everything had to go through Christopher. But there was, uh, you know, t- at least 10 to even more years before Christopher died, Fergus had really... Christopher trust Christopher trusted Fergus, and he his his role increased, and his you know they were more of an equal footing. So the transition when Christopher died was much easier in a way because 
Fergus had gardened with him so intimately for such a long time that <sighs> Fergus doesn't garden just for as Christo's garden. He gardens; it's his garden now, obviously. But he he knew him well enough to do you know just to continue it and do things as it had been done, but also change it to make it his own garden. If you, if I'm making that clear, no, I think so. I, I, I that's one of the things that for anyone that's new to gardening, um, I think is so important to understand. Things change um, in gardens. Uh, sometimes when you don't want them to, <laughs> there's an occasional, you know, plant failure that just happens. Uh, you know, some some botrytis comes along or phytophthora comes along, and it takes out you know a staple specimen plant maybe out of a garden, and that's the same thing. You know, you have to evolve and change with it over time, regardless of of who's um, doing the gardening or coming up with the creative ideas for it on. The vegetable side of Dixter and your time in that position, you're you're at an interesting time as well because not only after Christopher's passing, but then you're really coming into it at a moment where, at least here in the States and it's somewhere over in Europe as well with this, where grow locally, grow your own, uh, and embracing maybe a farmer's markets, more sustainability talk in relationship to edible agriculture. Is, is that, have you seen that linkage to what you do at Dixer along with that movement across the world? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's a huge part of the uh, psyche of a lot of people now is uh, how, where, where has this, this thing that I'm about to cook come from, you know, uh, was it grown on the other side of the world and chemically enhanced to ripen on the shelves in my shop? Uh, you know, I don't want to eat something that uh, a strawberry that was grown in the southern hemisphere, picked green, sprayed, and then sold for a huge price in England. You know, people are really embracing you know, seasonal, local, how it was produced, the impact on the environment. So it's it is a fantastic time to be in. Uh, in the vegetable world, I have to say. Do you have the experience with people, and it's something that I've got an opportunity to see as well, that, and you'd mentioned it with Christopher as well, that even if you want to step aside from some of maybe the environmental talk or some of the more idealistic components that are clearly important and very vital in the conversation of vegetable growing, but some of it, Aaron, is it just tastes better? It's just better. The that moment where people maybe have that experience, like you're saying with strawberries, where you taste a strawberry at the peak of its season off of the plant versus one of those picked green strawberries. You get to see that moment a lot with people in what you do. Oh, completely. And I think, you know, even look, we can't all have a vegetable garden, and I acknowledge that, and this is part of the reason for my new book. But I think you can go to your green grocer. And you can look at things and and think, is this in season now? Is it going to be at its best? Am I going to get a full flavor from it? And if the answer is yes, then you want it. Because taste is important. And also I think uh, we uh, the UK has been through a recession um, recently. Um, and people started to care more about how they were spending their money. Uh, and I think that really did help with seasonality. Well, and it's such a uh, 
a little talked about component sometimes, I feel, that it's just a better product. That it just, <laughs> it, it, it's, a, you know, I often say this, uh, you know, in the, the cut flower business side of it that I'm in, I tell people consistently the roses that are grown in Colombia and Ecuador versus the, the roses that I grow here, they're just not even the same thing. No, there, there's just, there's no, I, I, I don't feel, um, you know, is there a place in time for the other? Sure. Uh, but do I look at them as the same? Absolutely not. And in the, the vegetable world, how far do you get to play and, ex- and, and explore with varieties and things like aubergine or whatever else it might be that as people have come to, uh, wanting to know more about growing their own vegetable and and getting the idea sparked in their minds. Do you try to continue to broaden their perspective of what can be grown? Yeah, completely. I'm, I'm always pushing about, I mean, we look gardening, as I said earlier, is a, is a living art form and it's a changing art form. Like you said, you know, you can plan all you like on paper and winter when you're ordering your seeds of of what the end result is going to be like. But if you get a hugely dry summer, it, you may get a very different uh, crop to a wet summer. So it, it, there's a lot of things that you've got no control about. So we're always trying to push the boundaries and try new things. I'm looking more and more to the southern states of America for some of the more interesting uh, vegetables, okra and things that I want to grow in pots. Um, I, there's lots of things. You know, as we're getting these hotter summers, I want to try more interesting and exotic plants you know uh, aubergines would have generally in the old days been grown under glass in this country now we can grow them in a pot in a sunny courtyard very well and they they fruit incredibly well they and they look fantastic they look quite bizarre but fantastic well and that's one of the the real interesting things that i'm very optimistic about and clearly the book segues into this conversation is getting people it's one of the philosophies uh, some of my academic friends here in the States and I have talked about that however we get people excited about plants, great. However we get them into it is a benefit to everyone. And growing vegetables in containers and pots is something that clearly is very accessible to nearly everyone to, to start. How did you approach it in putting the book together as far as that being one of the the main fundamentals in the book as far as trying to get people excited about growing vegetables in containers or pots? Well, I, 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 my, my, my main message for the book was everyone can grow something. The other message I tried to get through was start off slowly. And that's the same principles as growing in, in open ground as pots. Don't take on more than you can chew because it's going to put you off quickly. If you know, Start with three herbs in, in a pot and realize it's not as difficult as you thought it may be and, and expand on that. I think where we, we go wrong is we, we suddenly we – we wanted to learn about gardens, so we dig up an acre of land and then wonder why we can't cope. Do it the other way around. Take it slowly and build on that. And I think that's where you'll get the passion if it's not a daunting thing out there. I'm 
super happy to hear you say that because it's one of my concerns in the category that I lean into a lot, which is cut flour at small scale that people are doing. And yep. I think with vegetable, it's it's very similar. I've seen much of the same thing that you're talking about. Do you do you have people that reach out to you? And it's one of the things I always tell people when let's slow down on maybe the word flower farm. How about we start a lovely small flower garden with a, a manageable group of plants, the same way you're saying with you know vegetables. Do you, you get people that reach out to you and, and do you have to maybe have that conversation with them? And I often tell people that I'm concerned sometimes that we're going to have people who want to do exactly what you just said, that, oh, I'm not going to start off like that. I'm going to start off tilling a quarter acre, a half acre, and then they're going to be disillusioned because that's a lot of effort. That's a lot of energy that needs to go into that. There's a very good question you can ask people when they – well, there's a good – well, there's one of the questions I ask people when they start talking about they want to get into this, they want to, you know, do it. I say, okay, so when do you take your holiday? And they'll – generally in this country, they'll say August. And I'll say, okay, who's going to water your plants at their most important moment for the need of water? And they they look unsure. And I say, well, when you go on holiday – those plants are going to die if you haven't got someone to look after them. So you've got to have it on a scale that you can get someone in to help watering. And it usually sort of wakes them up a bit from that that ideal about, you know, 10 acres of sweet corn when they could probably cope with uh, three rows of it. Um, you know, you just got to question how it's going to happen and watering is quite a good thing i think to ask them because it is it is playing a bigger and bigger and bigger part of uh, horticulture you know plants need water you you mentioned some of that change in the uk that you're experiencing firsthand from your time coming back to dixter after jerusalem are you experiencing it i mean and, and that's not a, a huge you know it's something i've observationally in here and having Natchez Glen for the last 12 years, um, I can definitely say, regardless of your politics, there is a change. Would you echo some of that in your time at Dixter? Yes. Yes. Like like on on rainfall totals, warmth and temperatures and just seasonality and climate change. Well, what I've noticed, my personal judgment from out there gardening is – the change has been we have much more extreme weathers. So when it's raining, it's intense rain. When it's windy, it's intense, prolonged wind. When it's hot, it's extremely hot for prolonged periods. But I've also noticed that the seasons are coming later. So our winters are coming more February, March. Uh, so the seasons are slightly pushing back and the weather has just become much more extreme you know when it's raining it's it's torrential rain it's it that's my noticeable change give us a bit of a snapshot of it's something i don't actually hear <laughs> talked about too much with great dixter what is the microclimate like there what what is the soil type in general I mean, clearly it's been gardened on now for for decades but what is that snapshot picture of the microclimate at Dixter like? 
Well, it's it's um it's a heavy clay soil. So we it's in an area called the Weald between the, the North Downs and the South Downs. It was a big flat area of woods and uh, past uh, grasses and heavy clay, and so it's quite easy in England to work out what your cli- what your soil type is by the architecture. So a lot of great dexterous uh, oak, but also brick and tiles. So terracotta. So there was a so the clay production was big in this area. Uh, it's a very heavy clay soil. Um, of course, we're very lucky. It's been worked on for over 100 years. Organic matter has been added into the soil. But in areas up in the prairie and places like that, it's still incredibly boggy. And when it rains, the rain has nowhere to go because it's long periods of rain and it just sits on the top because it's too heavy to go down any further. So it's a very heavy clay soil we're on. Does that influence you today in the vegetable garden? And is that one of the things too, when we talk about growing anything in pots or containers that, you know, the, the, the mix for that container clearly needs to, you know, have a lean towards the plant that you're going to put in it. How much of the influence of the actual soil structure and composition at Dixter influences what you choose to grow? Well, we're, I'm very lucky at Great Dixter because we make our own soil. So it's a loam based soil, loam from our own fields. Uh, so, which is very healthy and uh, loam to grow the vegetables in. Um, but crops need different things. So, you you may we may add diff- we may add grit, you know, sharp sand to some pots for different things. Uh, but generally, it's a it's a loam based soil uh, which we grow in. Now, when you envision people growing vegetables in containers or pots, what do you think is a great start for people you know maybe we want to move past the the herb stage and we're ready to grow something that's got a little bit more of a a substance as a meal what do you think are the top couple of recommendations you would give people well the first thing i would say before any what do you like to eat and can that be grown in a pot and work back from that i mean my my great uh, last year the great thing i grew which we haven't grown at Great Dixter for a long time. A sweet corn, and I grew it in a in a large fabric bag uh, because we have problems with a rodent called a badger, and they eat the, they knock them down and eat them. So we couldn't. So in the in the in the kitchen yard, we could grow our sweet corn. But I my my thing my advice would be always grow a crop you want to eat because there's no point otherwise. Now talk to me about the recipes in the book. That is something. Is that something that you personally did? Did you work in collaboration with anyone else? How did you come up with the recipes that are in it? Uh, the recipes are fr- uh, recipes I've got from friends, uh, v- visitors to the garden, um, collected over the years. I travel a lot, um, and I'm a greedy person naturally, so I like to eat and. If there's something I like, I generally, you know, on a menu or something, I'll look down what the ingredients were and kind of hobble together something that tastes similar when I get back. Um, but it's a it's a collaboration, really, with friends. And, um, you know, a lot of my friends are in the, the growing world. And so um, it seems to gardeners seem to like to eat, which is, I think, a great combination. Um, and they often, you know, look, 
we all sh- what are we doing with our courgettes this year or what are we doing with our tomatoes so we we talk about how we use them and lucky for us we're open to the public so the visitors are quite uh happy to share what they're doing with their crops as well and so i'll, I'll remember or take notes of um what, the, what some of the recipes like they g- give me what role if any do you see the restaurant world serving in this and, and not so much in a uh a hands-on way but maybe more in an awareness way restaurants like noma in copenhagen and here in the states french laundry in california with thomas keller that the embracing of seasonality the embracing of uh locally grown or sourced produce in a very micro way in the case of places like noma has do you think that's helped overall it's it's broadened national or international awareness of it as a topic yeah hugely and i think places like there's a there's a private hotel uh, not far from us gravetime manor uh michelin star restaurant 17 room hotel and with one of the most fantastic vegetable gardens and there is a it's a marriage really between tom the head gardener and george the chef of they sit down together they talk about what they want to do and he goes out there and he looks around the garden you know it's it's it's, it's there is a massive change to ordering online you know over the phone or online or wherever people people want to go out the chefs want to go out there and look at what's growing and, and think about what they can do with it and and i see that you know at gravetime manor just this amazing marriage of this the two components the cooking and the, the growing and it works very well when guests visit dixter you have an opportunity to travel as you said you interact with people do you get a sense that is there ever a surprise that vegetable and the vegetable garden at Dixter was such a an early staple in the gardens themselves. Oh, people come here and don't even know there is a vegetable garden. I've you know I've met people in the uh, outside Great Dixter and said you know I'm the vegetable garden. They say I didn't even know there was a vegetable garden. So it is it, it's um I think that's changing slightly because there is a big interest in food and food production, but I think. It is an area that is bypassed quite quickly. Uh, people will often come to Great Dixter and uh, the long border and things and the meadows and things play a much bigger part in what they remember about their visit. It's so fascinating, though, because on the bigger worldview stage, I would say that vegetable gardening has, as we talked about earlier, has brought so many people into the world of plants. Do you ever, it's sort of an interesting um, dichotomy there that visitors to Dixter are unaware that one of, as you said, the early fundamentals of the garden was vegetable gardening and and throughout the, the history of estate gardens, both in the UK and across the world, that vegetable gardens were really not just, um, a novelty for the for the estate but they were practical for the estate a necessity. a necessity yeah i think vegetable gardening is kind of the ugly sister really um of horticulture uh which i think she's getting prettier uh over time but it's still it doesn't i think people think decorative is much more intellectual much more artistic whereas vegetable gardeners are probably not as bright as decorative gardeners i think there is that mm. that feeling 
Do you, uh, do you yeah. think the word farmer has anything to do with that? That's that's something that I've often lamented with friends of mine in the, the vegetable world that uh, I'll give you an example that's uh, very practical. When people go to maybe, let's say, a local farmer's market, that there is some perception there that that product would be cheaper because yep. it's farmer. It's direct from the farm. Do you think that plays into it? I think so. I think some people slightly have the attitude they're doing their bit for charity by supporting the farmer, by de- buying directly from the farmer. They're doing their bit to sort of help the poor little man out. Um, whereas farmers are actually helping <laughs> people who eat food out hugely by selling directly to them. Uh, yes, I, I think it is a, it is that farmer, but I think it's um it's an unfortunate negativity, negative word farmer uh they should be embraced more yeah well and absolutely it's one of the things i say here i always joke i uh i say flower farmer slash gardener slash person who occasionally grows flowers and sells flowers um i i don't do you think from a fundamental from a real technical skills stage one of the the categories that i find interesting is people want to make this massive distinction between the fundamentals of vegetable gardening versus the fundamentals of somehow ornamental gardening when in reality we're still growing plants so many of them are similar oh completely and i i I could garden as well as any decorative gardener um i think it is hugely it's it's a funny thing it's you know you'll go to a dinner party and you'll say and someone will say to you what do you do and i'll say i'm a gardener they say oh you design i say no i'm a gardener and they kind of look at you like a gardener you know there's this uh, i don't know there's still a funny thing about gardening and growing and i don't know the people don't really still don't understand how fantastic it is. And I think you're completely right. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I believe the perception here in the States is that in Europe, it's a more elevated pursuit. Do you see the people that do reach out to you, let's say through social media, through the the traveling that you do that have interest in vegetable gardening, would you say it's a younger skewing group of people maybe no uh yes but there's also the older generation so there's the the uh, the the older generation grew out of necessity because you know they they grew vegetables because they couldn't that was the only way to get vegetables for a lot of the time you know especially after the war and all that sort of thing and then there's suddenly there's a big leapfrog to the younger sort of 20 30 something who are also very much interested, but there's the sort of the the the, 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 the between those two ages. Uh, I think the supermarket era um, le- less interest in it. I I I completely agree with you. I think we've lost a group of people along the way, Aaron. <laughs> I would uh, I would categorize myself as one of those people in age that may have gotten lost by it, but I think I eventually uh, found my interest in it. To to start wrapping us up here. Your, the book, the recipes, how do you want people to receive it? You know, do you, do you want to, 
is your goal to get people to just embrace the idea of just starting, you know, and you can start in a small space regardless of if you have a large space or not? What I, the thing I really want to do is I want people to taste the difference. To if even if they grow basil, that's the only thing they grow. But to see how fantastic it is to grow your own basil, to have it sun ripened, so the oils are much stronger, the flavours intense. I think if that's all they get out of it, I think fantastic. If it if it triggers something in them, even better. Um, but I think we all can grow something and all make a difference to the production of food. On a small scale, it doesn't have to be acres of vegetables. I'm very happy to hear you embracing that because I have felt now for a long time my own personal experience in edibles began around 04. And when we first built our home here, we had a half acre vegetable garden was really the start of what I did here with gardening. And that was my motivator then. It was just, wow, this tastes better. There there was that experience of, um, just going out and then going, what is this other stuff they're selling at these grocery stores? What is this? This isn't the same. Yeah. And I, I sometimes feel that there's many other marketing and branding narratives that have almost hijacked um, some of the grow your own, grow local, eat local kind of movement that have taken it away from that. It's just that simple thing like you just mentioned that it just simply tastes better and let's start them there. Is that true in the UK that, you know, there's there's been large companies that have come into the space and sort of the word organic gets a little mixed in there as well that maybe it feels like we're taking it a little bit off message of actually just getting people to see that very basic primal difference between it? Yeah, I think, look... The organic seems to be the, uh, the the catchphrase at the moment, but I don't want to buy an organic vegetable that is grown in New Zealand and been shipped across. I would rather someone said it was a local vegetable. I I would rather they didn't use chemicals, but on a on a certain scale, sometimes you're you you can't do anything. But um, I think it's really important to. to seasonally eat and 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 think where was it produced was it locally produced give me as we wrap up here your favorite thing personally to grow just a couple what are what are things that you still even after doing this now for a good amount of time that you're still just always excited i know for me you know if it's vegetable or if it's ornamental i have things i just wait for what are those things for you uh peas uh Beetroot, I adore beetroot. Um, berries, of course. I mean, is there anything better than eating a berry straight off a plant on a warm summer's evening? Uh, um, alpine strawberries, warm afternoon, straight from the plant. Uh, there's so many things. I mean, I just adore, and this is one of the, th- the the great things about growing in pots outside the kitchen door. You know, when there's a pan of um, potatoes boiling on, on the stove, you can go out there, fiddle around, and start nibbling at things uh, straight from the plant, and they taste so good. Well, and, and that moment, like you just said, I've had so many moments in my own life over the last ten or fifteen years where you're doing exactly that, where you maybe have something like 
potatoes and they're getting ready and you just grow out and you grab a, a pair of snips and you just take off some fresh thyme or some fresh sage and you just toss that through and just the ability to elevate a dish so easily has always been one of my appreciations for it. It feels like cheating almost that you just have this super easy thing that you can do that just makes that food elevate to a place that maybe most people aren't familiar with. And it doesn't have to be complicated. That's the, I think. And that's the point is, you know, you can have a pot of mint and while your potatoes are boiling, go up there, cut a little of the mint, cut it up and put that in there when they're cooked. And the flavor is extraordinary. It doesn't have to be a complicated procedure. It can be very simple. Do, do you feel like that's one of the things too, and in the recipes in the book, I'm sure this reflects that same thing, that one of the cheats that maybe sometimes isn't as well communicated as it should be by some great chefs in the professional realm is one of the reasons why they're so passionate about sourcing is because they know it gives them such an advantage in the, their food preparation and in recipe creation that sourcing those type of ingredients like we're talking about just gives you this huge advantage over commodity-grown products. Completely, and I think they're, they're all waking up to that. I know George at Gravetime Manor, you know, he's got this resource that a lot of people would kill for. You know, a lot of chefs would kill for that walled garden where he can walk up there, pick vegetables straight away and get them straight to the kitchen and into his dishes, which take it, his cooking to a new level. Uh, and I think there's, there's a big interest in that now. I appreciate your time with us. I, I think one of the, the, the really big things I appreciate about the entire team and yourself included at Great Dixter is whenever I have any any interaction with anyone there, I know that you know having somebody like Christopher in as the um, such a you know shadow is almost too much of a dubious word to use, but having this reputation essentially that all of you just do such a tremendous job of communicating not just about Dixter but your own passion for plants. So I really appreciate you and everyone there that does that so well. Well, thank you. And Christopher still is a big presence at Great Dixter. You know, we, I'm still living in his house. It still is his place. And I think it's a, it's, it's a great moment for Great Dixter because a lot of us who, work, who are still working here were part of Christopher's life. And so it continue, he, he continues being a presence in, in, in the everyday life at Great Dixter. ties of these old abandoned rails wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own and I try to empathize with all they bear there's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes 
And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way for you 